Welcome to Behind the Data. This is the podcast that takes you inside the world of market research and breaks down the topics we love to nerd out on. I'm Sarah Abadi, and today we're joined by Lisa Holmes, who manages the survey team at Euromonitor. Now, Lisa, let's make sure I accurately describe this. The survey team asks all kinds of interesting questions and then uses the results to understand trends around the world. Yeah, I think you got it, Sarah. Yes. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah. Well, then welcome to the show Thank officially. You. Thank you. So we, we get what market research is and why it's valuable, but then what? You know, How do we identify who to survey and what kinds of questions do we want to ask? Talk me through that. Yeah. So as you said, my little corner of market research is surveys, and it seems on surface, like it's a pretty simple concept. You're just figuring out what questions you want to ask of people. And usually those people are the average consumer. So the normal person you see walking down the street, we want to find them and ask them questions to figure out what their everyday life looks like. What are they doing every day? What are their habits and behaviors and preferences? So at a really, again, a really high level, that's what we're doing with surveys. It's not rocket science, but it does get a little tricky when you're trying to really uncover that voice of either your customer. Sometimes it's uncovering the voice of the expert. So deciding what kind of questions to ask um, and where to go with that. But typically with the surveys that we do, it's just very basic questions. You know, what do you do when you're shopping? What kind of technology do you use? How do you see yourself in the world around you? It's a little introspective. How do you it see is. yourself? <laughs> You're like, oh, it's you... no big deal. Just like evaluate your purpose in life. It's <laughs> usually not open-ended, so we lead them to that. But yeah, I think those are the best kind of survey questions, actually, are the ones that are getting people to think more about the world around them and their place in it rather than just, you know, how many times do you go shopping for groceries each week, which can also be very informative, but it's those personality trait questions that get us to another level. That's interesting that you say personality traits, because when I think of surveys, I think of more kind of your standard demographic information, like age or gender or geography. So do you cover that as well, or do you stick to personality? We definitely do both. And I think, uh, as you said, that is what a lot of people think about with surveys is the basic demographics. And that's how a lot of companies are using surveys as well to profile their consumer segments and their target markets is more of the demographic side. So my prime example of this is always millennials because it's my like this, favorite term. Right, right. It's this white whale for brands and, and companies who want to target millennials, want to get millennial money. Everybody else in other generations says millennials are ruining the world today. So it's this very... Um, generic way of talking about a set of consumers using just their age to profile them. And in reality, millennials are not one homogenous group. I think everybody at the core knows that, but it's just, it's very easy for companies to use that mm -hmm. sort of top-down approach to say, okay, I'm going to target millennials, or I'm going to target women, or I'm going to target uh, people who are retired. And that's taking that demographic side. There's nothing wrong with it, but sometimes that masks some really interesting differences um, across different people within the same demographic group. Like what? Uh, well, for example, in the millennial group, this is something that uh, I find fascinating and I look at a lot just because of this uh, generic approach to millennials that a lot of companies take. You actually see a huge range of, um, again, personality traits, but also shopping habits, mm -hmm. tech usage. So not all millennials are the stereotypical users of smartphones 24-7. Um, 
you know, not all of them are super brand focused and uh, into social media. So that's what we get from these surveys when we ask questions that go beyond just the normal demographics and start to not only uncover behaviors and uh, personality traits and preferences of consumers, but also actually use those to segment them. So get rid of that top-down segmentation of demographics and do what I call bottom-up segmentation, where you're almost letting people group themselves based on their uh, characteristics rather than grouping them in some top-down way. So you could have a 60-year-old and a 25-year-old end up in the same segment. That's really interesting. I can promise you my mom and I are not in the same tech segment, but I would imagine that there are some boomers who are, are maybe a little more tech savvy. Sorry, Denise. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about things because I guess it doesn't really matter if you're 22 or 42 if you use similar products or have similar spending habits. I would imagine like the recession you know, in the 2000s or recessions in the 80s, you might have some cross-generational saving and spending habit similarities there. So it makes sense that they would respond to marketing, you know, in a similar way, regardless of when they were born. Definitely. And, I, and from the company perspective, it's not that they really care if you're technically a millennial or not. It's more finding an easy way Do to you act profile. like one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you, Do you shop act like, like a millennial? Will you respond to this ad like a millennial? That's all they care about. And it, it, it is really easy to use this rule of thumb. Okay, if you're in your 20s, this is how you're going to respond. If you're in your 60s, this is how you're going to respond. But I think taking this different approach to segmentation and using uh, these types of a little bit more, as you said, introspective questions on how do you see yourself in the world? Uh, what kind of preferences do you have? And using those to segment people can lead companies and brands to some more creative and even more targeted ways of finding their core customers. They might even be missing a segment that if they only looked at age, gender, maybe income, it just wouldn't pop up. So what are some of the the overlooked segments? It sounds like you have one or two in yeah, mind. Yeah. So uh, this is something that uh, I work on a lot. And my favorite of these segments that we've named, so there are eight global consumer types okay. that, that we use. And some of them uh, are pretty standard that you might think of. We have one called the Undaunted Striver, who's very status focused. I'd say that's the most stereotypical millennial, even though okay. it spans all age groups. On the other end, we have a secure traditionalist. Uh, the icon we use for that one is a person in a rocking chair. So very uh, set in their ways. They're not going to be receptive to marketing. Oh, I know some stubborn millennial men who are pretty set in their ways that I've encountered in the dating world. So that does not surprise me exactly. whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. So you could have anybody in these. But the ones that I've seen, uh, actually, the ones that have popped out in the last few years that we didn't see when we started this back in 2011 were... Um, one is the empowered activist. Ooh. So this is one that I think is coming from a little bit more awareness. And these are global. So this is across 21 markets. This isn't just in the U.S. We see these coming out. Um, but these are people who are more focused on the social and environmental uh, issues and concerns. So like fair trade coffee or products made in particular countries to support, you know, tribal women or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, they tend to have a more global focus in general in terms of how they see their life going. So a lot of them, if they don't already live abroad, a lot of them think that they will or they might work abroad. Uh, some of them are also the ones who might say that they expect to be self-employed in the future. Interesting. Yeah, so it's less about the material status, but I think it's sort of leaning into a different type of status we're seeing emerging with this uh, experiences over things and being mm -hmm. very 
socially and environmentally aware. That's really cool. Yeah. So then empowered activists and then the other new segment that we've seen in the last few years, um, which are somewhat related, are the inspired adventurers. Ooh, and these that are the ones. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're the mountain climbers. Uh, and so not me. Not me. <laughs> I didn't take the survey, but I can tell you I am not the mountain climber. Yeah. And they are, um, you know, they're similar to the empowered activists in that they see the world as a smaller place that they can really go conquer and live abroad and work for themselves. But they're also a little bit more, I guess, selfish than the empowered activists. They're the ones who are going to be taking the Instagram photos on the top of Everest. So maybe me. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a combination. So they're, again, maybe less of the physical materialism, but tapping into this very social media forward trend of, you know, you got to be seen doing things. That's your status. Gotcha. That's really interesting. I would have not pegged those categories. That's really cool to hear about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess how how do we even go about building a survey that would uncover these traits or figure out, you know, that someone is an adventurer or an activist? I mean, how do we decide – who we want to take the surveys, and how would I even go about building one? Like, How do we get started? And this is where sometimes I run into some issues with people who think about surveys when they hear them. Okay, it's easy. You're just asking someone questions, right? Anybody could do that. And really, anybody could do it. It's not rocket science, but you have to be careful. And I think the two main areas are knowing what to ask and who to ask. So on the what to ask side, there's some very specific things you need to consider when you're putting together your survey. And it can be something as simple as don't ask leading questions. So what's a leading question? Great that you asked that. I actually have a few prepared here, so I get them right. All Um, right. Okay. So I'm going to ask you this question. Should responsible dog owners vaccinate their pets? I feel like there is no correct answer without inciting any kind of angry response. What's the first thing that comes to mind? It sounds like yes. Yes. Right? Because I tied vaccination with responsibility. Right. I didn't just say, should people vaccinate their pets? I don't know. If you go on Facebook, there's a bunch of (laughs) anti-vaxxers out there. So that's why why I I use dogs (laughs) instead of children here. But it's the same. You know, I I use the word responsible. But now it ties that in my head. Exactly. Okay. I could have asked it a different way, though. I could have said... Should concerned pet owners be required to vaccinate their dogs with potentially harmful chemicals? But now you called the chemicals harmful. Now I call them harmful. And now you would probably or at least be more likely to say no. Right? No. Yeah. I love my dog. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to give them harmful chemicals. Never. I mean, this is the whole argument of the anti-vaxxers. It's all about positioning. Sure. And that's the same thing. And that's an extreme example uh, in in a survey question. But even uh, just being aware of order choice of, yeah. of responses. You know, if I put one response choice first, people are more likely to do it. Uh, if I ask about smoking habits or exercise habits, people tend to be a little aspirational about how they answer those. Even in anonymous online surveys, we see that. And what's really interesting is it varies across countries and across cultures on how maybe aspirational people are with their responses. And that's just something that everybody in the survey world knows about and you see it consistently. So how do you account for that? It's tricky because there's really no way to quantify the amount of aspiration, uh, say, Brazilian respondents put versus uh, Japanese respondents when they're Mm -hmm. taking a survey. So the approach that I take, and I think 
this is pretty consistent. Other people might do something slightly different is you present the results as they are, um, keeping that in mind. And if you're publishing or writing and thinking about analysis related to those results, that's when you take it into consideration. So here are the results. You know, this is the comparison across markets. Um, this is where trends also really come into play because if you can track results year over year for the same market or the same group of consumers, then even if they had a relatively optimistic answer with their smoking habits, for example, if that changes over time, you know, okay, there is something happening there. There is something changing, even if maybe the base number isn't 100% accurate. Although anonymous online surveys are going to get you the closest from answering perspective. Um, No one would ever tell someone in person their real smoking or drinking or exercise habits. I don't know. I I get asked by my doctor all the time. (laughs) You know, people are honest with their doctors, but I don't even know if that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much. There's this built in human nature to please people. Sure. Everybody wants to please and they think they know even subconsciously what the right answer is. That's what they'll go for. So have you seen one region or country or group of people, whether it's demographic or personality based, um, that tends to be the most aspirational? We see this in Latin America quite a bit. Um, And I don't know necessarily if aspirational is the right way to frame how they tend to answer surveys, but we do tend to see them a little bit higher on uh, these attitudinal questions. Um, And then on the flip side, Japanese respondents are notorious for being much lower uh, on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And this is something that has been discussed in market research among survey practitioners quite a bit and and just uncovering what that really means. And and I don't have the answers on that, but we see it consistently, really regardless of the topic of the survey. Huh. I would have thought it was Americans that are maybe boasting the most, but maybe yeah, I think Americans, the news is a little disproportionate in who we see. Yeah, yeah, they tend to be maybe in the middle, although I think if you break it down by demographics, then you would see some differences in age, mm. maybe even in gender, too. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to see those cultural differences pop up. Um, so we talked a little about the cultural differences. What about like the general topic you've surveyed on? What's maybe the coolest survey topic or the the cooler project you were giving the survey for? Yeah, we have done so many different surveys and so many different topics. Uh, I think one that jumped to mind immediately was a survey we did about a year and a half ago on uh, how comfortable people would be with interacting with physical robots. Whoa. Yeah, right. And this was a year and a half ago. And at the time, I thought this is a really out there topic. I had no personal connection to it. I thought, you know, we'll ask these questions, see what people say. And now even, you know, not even two years later, I haven't seen them, but I know that there are now robots in acting as concierges and hotels and in restaurants. And maybe that's bigger in Asia than it is in the U.S., but this is a real thing. So that one was good. And that that survey also asked about interactions with artificial intelligence in general. Uh And it was fascinating to see that Really not that many people, maybe about a quarter of the respondents said that they had interacted with artificial intelligence. That they know of. That they know of, exactly. And then another half had no idea. They said, maybe, maybe I have, but I'm not sure. Yeah. And I'm sure in reality, probably all of us have at some point, like a chat bot or something. Yeah. 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 What about like the most unique question? Good, bad, weird? Mm -hmm. 
we're asking a question on a survey right now. So I don't have, I haven't seen the results yet, but I'm really excited to see it. The question is, um, what does beauty mean to you? Ooh. And then there's a whole set of choices that range from the very superficial to, you know, being smart to being kind. And we're asking that one in 20 different countries of people of all ages and uh, men and women. So I think that one is going to be really fascinating to see how that breaks down. I am very curious to mm-hmm. see what those results are. Yeah. Um. So the AI robot survey I think it's cool. It's a little quirky. Is that the weirdest thing you've had to research before? Good, bad, ugly? Does it get even (laughs) weirder than that? One that was incredibly specific was uh, figuring out how interested people would be in a um, esports gaming theme park in the middle of the desert in the Middle East. That is very specific. Very, very specific and kind of tough to gauge interest on that. For some, it, it in general in surveys, it's tough to ask people how interested they'd be in something that doesn't exist yet. So I always use smartphones as the example. Ten years ago, whenever smartphones started becoming really popular, if you'd asked me, "Do you want something that can just be a computer that you bring around in your pocket all day?" I'd probably say, "No, I don't need that." Uh, but turns out I do need that. So yeah, it's, I bet the answer today is absolutely. how do I live without it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah, this theme park one was an extreme example of that, but it, it, it can be tricky to find out interest in something that doesn't exist yet. And you have to kind of tell people what it is and then ask them, would you be interested in going to this? What are what else other uh, activities do you do maybe that are related to that type of entertainment. Well, yeah. And to your point about leading questions, I guess it's tough that you can't really give examples because then you sort of frame their mind around another park and they would constantly be comparing to the other theme park or amusement activity that you described. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm amazed every day. Like all of this seems so simple, you know, asking questions, but you don't really think about all of the research and interviewing and weird, quirky behind the scenes stuff that goes into everyday products or robots that we interact with and and all of that kind of thing. So I'm fascinated by all of this. I love hearing about it. Yeah. And I I think my favorite part of doing these and my favorite topics that we cover are just the everyday activities. So it is fun to cover the robot topics or theme park topics. But when we ask people things as simple as how often do you brush your teeth one American. Oh, I don't know that I want to know that. Answer. American men low. do not come out well in that compared cool. to uh, all of the other markets. But uh, just asking them these very basic questions and then looking, especially the global elements of being able to look across countries and demographics and even our own consumer types and see these big differences. I think that's fascinating. I I think that's my favorite part about this is is just you know, how does this fit? Where do I fit in with this? Because I can answer these questions for myself as well. And yeah, do you find you compare yourself to survey respondents? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All the time. Yeah. And especially with our different consumer types, like the undaunted striver, the secure traditionalist. So which one are you? Uh, I like to think I'm a hybrid of a Mm. balanced optimist and somewhat of an undaunted striver. I, you know, I think I, I have the best traits of all of them, really. I mean, <laughs> obviously, obviously. Yeah. And yeah, but it's, it's just fascinating to put yourself into those different categories. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and diving deeper on the kinds of questions we ask people, how surveys work, how 
We interact with robots and everything in between. Absolutely. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Behind the Data. We hope you're just as curious as we are and will continue to listen as we dissect data, research, and everything in between. Thank you.